0: Ooh, man! Aren't you glad he overcame? If you have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter twenty-eight today, we are now in the home stretch of this series that we've been in. That all started with a reading of one biblical truth after another that um, was done way back in April during our last Easter service. And ever since then, we've been going through and looking at each one of those scriptural truths uh, a little closer. And everything that we've been looking at up to this point has really been focused on what all we have in Christ. It's been about the results of the gospel and what has been provided Through the death and resurrection of Jesus to all who put their trust in him. Today we're going to move into the very last part of that reading, which from here on is all about him. And uh, we've only got just a couple more Sundays left in this particular series, and my hope is that these truths will produce in us a greater awe and love for him than we've ever had before. The truth about him that we're going to be looking at today is found in the very last words that Jesus spoke before he ascended to the Father in Matthew 28. We're going to read what is commonly known as the Great Commission in verses 18 through 20. So let's all stand together as we do that. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I just call on you right now. In the name of Jesus, would you come and just blow over us and awaken us from... Just the stupor of self that we tend to get in. Lord, I pray that you would make yourself known in ways that whatever ways, whatever, however we have made you. Anything that we have made of you in our own minds that does, has nothing to do with you, Lord, I pray that that just crumbles this morning. Lord, would you burn that image up with the fire of your truth. So that we can see you for who you really are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm sure that most of you have no doubt heard many sermons on this particular text. But what I want to focus on today is not really what Jesus told the disciples to do, but what he says about himself. In the very first line there in verse 18 where he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, I'm just going to let you know right from the get-go here that what we are looking at today is pretty heavy. And I don't really know what else to do with it other than just let it be heavy. And because of that, there probably won't be very many of you who are going to leave here just all chipper. That's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, our purpose for coming together and getting into God's Word shouldn't be so that we will leave here feeling all warm and fuzzy every Sunday. It should be to leave here knowing and loving God just a little bit more than we did before we came. And that's what I hope the message does today, regardless of how it makes you feel. So I'm going to show you what the Bible says about who God is what he is like and then i'm going to talk a little bit about our response to him and then at the end i'm going to land the plane very abruptly it's not going to be a a, a smooth one at all and i'm going to leave you completely hanging so that's what you got to look forward to today so let's go What Jesus says about himself here really isn't anything new. He is just reaffirming an aspect of himself that God has already revealed all throughout Scripture. We're going to look at some of these. And as we do, I want you to pay attention to what is going on in your mind and in your heart as we read these. Because these verses should churn some stuff up in us. That we are going to have to wrestle with. Now I'm going to go through these pretty quick. So I'm just letting you know for those of you who have your Bibles and like to follow along where I'm reading. Just don't try it today because I don't have time to wait on you to get there. They'll be up on the screen but I do suggest that you at least write the references down so that you can go back and read them for yourself later. The first one is Psalm 115 3 that simply says this. But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. It's a simple statement packed with a whole lot of meaning. God does whatever He wants, and it doesn't tell us why. It just says he does because he's God and he can. If he wants to do something, he can do it. If he wants to stop it, he can stop it. If he wants to intervene, he can intervene. If he chooses not to intervene, he won't intervene. Psalm 135, 6 says again, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. Now let's go to Daniel chapter 4. This text in Daniel that we're fixing to read is one that I don't believe I've ever seen printed on a coffee cup anywhere. This is not one of those feel-good coffee cup verses that we love to quote, but you'll hear some of what Jesus echoed in Matthew 28, 18. Daniel 4, 35 says this about God. All the inhabitants of the earth, which is you and me, are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will In the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Anyone seen that one printed on a t-shirt or a keychain anywhere? Don't think so. Now let's go to a New Testament one. Romans chapter 9. Everyone's favorite chapter in the whole New Testament, right? Romans 9, 16 says, so then, talking about salvation here, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Did you hear that? Your standing before God does not depend on your effort, your exertion, your desire, but depends solely on. And only and completely on the grace and mercy of God. He has all authority both in heaven and on earth. Now, some people have this belief that the way that God operates and and intervenes and relates to things going on here in the world is that Basically, he just created everything and designed things to function in certain ways and put these laws and principles into motion. And, and so he just kind of sits back now and lets things just naturally play out and run their course. But that is not the God that we find in the Bible. Not only does he have all authority, but he exercises that authority at every level and is actively involved in every detail of all that he created. The Bible shows us that he exercises his authority over the weather. Job 37, 6 says, For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth, and to the downpour and the rain be strong. Well, Jesus demonstrated this when he just spoke to the storm and the, told it to be still and the wind stopped and the seas became calm. He exercises his authority over the animal kingdom. Psalm 104:27 says, they all wait for you to give them their food in due season. Jesus said, not one sparrow falls to the ground without the father being aware of it and he takes care of them all. He exercises his authority even over nations and governments that rule on earth. Job 12.23 says he makes the nations great, then destroys them. He enlarges nations, then leads them away. Romans 13.1 says that every governing authority is established not by the Democrats, not by the Republicans, not by the communists, but by... God himself. And even things that we would just naturally assume just happen by random chance, the Bible says that God is even involved in. Proverbs 16:33 says the lot or our modern day equivalent would be flipping a coin or rolling the dice, the lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. We could go on and on here with Scripture that affirms the absolute sovereignty and authority of God and how He upholds everything and is decisively involved in every event in the world and every outcome of all that He created. And I'll admit, these are hard verses. These verses grate against something inside of us at some level. The verses that we do put on coffee cups and the ones that we do tend to be drawn to are the ones like John three sixteen, and all the ones that talk about the abounding love of God. I mean, don't we automatically feel drawn to those verses and away from Daniel 4? Of course we do. And we don't want this terrifying God who controls all. We want him domesticated. We want to be able to ring our little bell and get him to do whatever we want him to do. We want to put him into our debt and give him stuff so that we'll have some kind of leverage on him in order to get him to to do what we want him to do and give us what we want. But these verses here absolutely fly in the face of all of that. Now the reason why you and I struggle with verses like this is basically because of two reasons. Number one, it's because we are all inherently rebellious. It's part of the sin nature that we were born with that I talked about last week. And number two, it's because we are the great-grandchildren of the Enlightenment. Let me try to explain that. The Enlightenment was a movement that became very popular during the 18th century. That stated that human mind and intellect, human reason could overcome ignorance, superstition, the tyranny of the day and build a better world. But its primary target was religion. It all started in France where there was this railing against the oppression of the Catholic church. But they also sought to destroy the system of aristocracy which said that some people were better or more important than others Um, depending on the line of wealth and power that they were born into. Enlightenment sought to use human reason to destroy those two things, the power and authority of the church and the power and authority of the aristocracy. The Enlightenment brought for the first time in history the idea of the natural law of freedom and self-determination. Now if that sounds a little bit familiar, it should because that same language is used in the founding documents of this country. The great experiment called the United States of America was birthed from this enlightenment movement. And what it promoted are three main things. The idea of self, the idea of individualism, and the idea of freedom for that self and that individual. Our American roots are steeped in these ideas. Enlightenment philosophy is ingrained in our existence as a people, as a culture, and our ideals. Now, I'm not saying those are all bad things. I mean, the Enlightenment period did bring us some really good things, including the greatest country that ever existed on the face of the earth. But it also created this massive problem, which is now the air that we breathe, that creates in us this, this anxiety and anger about text and scripture like this that says that God does whatever he wants. We read that and we think, oh, oh no, well, that's not fair. I have rights. What about my rights? All of that comes from enlightenment thinking and is deeply ingrained in us and what it means to be an American. The main problem with enlightenment was that for the first time in human history, on this massive scale, man's eyes were turned away from God and onto himself. But man was not created to live that way. And when self rules, there is no authority outside of self. And any authority outside of self that attempts to rear its head, we automatically want to rebel and overthrow. Enlightenment philosophy is absolutely saturated in our American culture. I mean, just pay attention to the popular songs in any era from any genre. From Elvis Presley's song, I Did It My Way, to John Lennon's Imagine. Imagine a world of no politics, no religion, no government, nothing but peace, love, harmony. John Cougar Mellencamp, when I fought authority, authority always wins. I've been doing this since I was a young kid and came out grinning. I know those are all old songs, but we can pick any new songs today that are popular and you will find this same theme Running in the lyrics of them as well. And it's not only in songs, but also in the movies and TV shows that we watch. We find it in politics. We find it in business. People doing whatever they want for their own self gain, regardless of what the rules say. And don't think that the church has been immune from it. It too is known for those who have abused their position for financial gain or sexual gain or whatever. Because of Enlightenment thinking, people in the church have sold out the gospel and the nature and character of God found in Scripture because it's not popular, it's scary, and it goes completely against the very fabric of our society. From priests who abuse kids to megachurch pastors who swindle money and do drugs and have affairs, the church has not escaped this. This thinking permeates every single aspect of our culture the enlightenment was like pouring gasoline on the ref, on the fire of our rebellious nature that already existed one of the areas that we really see the enlightenment begin to rob the church of its power and its enjoyment of god and its worship is where over the years the bible has ceased to be a book about god and has become a book about us it's all about us. I mean, we are the great-grandchildren of the Enlightenment, and so even the Bible must be about what I want as an individual. With that mentality, we've taken what God intended to reveal to us, his, his heart and his character and his nature, and we've been able to turn it into some sort of uh, spiritual medical encyclopedia. How can I be happy? How can I get rid of this? How can I do this or do that? How can I be successful in this area? And we put ourselves at the center of all the stories in here. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you find eternal life. But I'm telling you, it is these that testify of me. In other words, he's saying, this is not a how-to book to get what you want out of life. This is a book about me. And if you're not reading it to find me, you're not going to find that life that you are looking for. The only way that we're going to get from God's Word what he intended for us to get from is when we stop making it about us and we start reading it looking for him. I and mean, even in the church, you see enlightenment thinking, even in the worship songs that we sing. There's so many that are me focused. And we sing about what I want and how I feel and me, me, me. Let's talk a little more about what the Bible does say about him. Very first, the first four words, the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1 1, it says, In the beginning, God it was just Him. No one created Him. No one gives birth to Him. He is not from someone's idea or imagination. In the beginning was God. The beginning of what? Yes. Before there was anything, there was God, who exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and he is totally content and fully happy in himself. Creation was not about him being lonely or incomplete in any way. And after millions and millions of years of absolute nothingness, God speaks. And just by the words of his mouth, the universe explodes into existence. There was never such, any such thing as the expanse of the universe. And then suddenly God says, let there be. And it was. There was never any such thing as oxygen, and now there is. There was never any such thing as stars and planets, and God said, let there be, and now there are. There were never such thing as mountains on those planets or water or cells or mitochondria, and now there is simply because God spoke and it came into existence. I mean, I could go on and on here. Just think about that kind of power And it wasn't like God was going, man, it's day six. I better get these mountains finished here. No, or going, man, I'd like for there to be more water, but I'm running low on hydrogen that I'm going to need to mix with these oxygen molecules. And no, he doesn't work like we do. God doesn't need resources to make anything. All the resource that he needs is contained within himself. And so he can just speak and create whatever he wants out of nothing and make as much of it as he wants to, just by the words of his mouth. Unbelievable. In my study for this message, I came across a verse that just absolutely blew me away. Job 26 is describing God's magnificent creation, and how he upholds it all, from the brightness of the moon to the condensation of clouds, to the vast expanse of the stars and how he holds it all together and he, he makes the rain fall and not fall and tells the oceans you can only go so far and he's holding all your cells together right now in your body and giving you the air that's going in and out of your lungs and he does it all over the earth at one time without any stress or strain on his brain or need for a nap. And then in verse 14, it says, behold, these are but the fringes of his power. The fringes. And the very next line says, and how faint a word we hear of him. What that's saying is that everything that we discover about the known universe that geniuses like Einstein and Hawking are still baffled by and as big and spectacular and huge as it all is. If this is the universe telling us about God, it's still just one faint word compared to who he really is. It's just the fringes of his power. We haven't even tapped into a fraction of who he is. My goodness. Mm. And Because he is creator of all things, he is sovereign over all things. Because he made it, he sustains it, he controls it, and he owns it. There's not one square inch of all that exists that God doesn't rightfully stand over and declare mine. It's mine. And what we see over and over in Scripture again is how his creation obeys him. There is not one particle of dust that exists that doesn't have to obey God because he has all authority. And the reason why he created it all was, again, not because he was lonely or incomplete or because he was bored, but he simply created it to display his glory. The ultimate purpose behind all this creating and governing and leading is that God might display his infinite perfections and that we would obey enjoy and worship him. All that exists has been created by God for God. And everything that he created obeys and serves its intended purpose except for one part, human beings. The only thing that he created to be the object of his strongest affection from all other creation is the only part of that creation that spits in his face. We're the only ones that take what was given by God for God and act as if it was given by us for us. The great blasphemy of the universe is when people whom God made to enjoy Him and worship Him elevate themselves above God and worship His stuff instead of Him. But the important question here in all this is, What is God's response to that? What happens when something God created tries to exalt itself above him and rob him of his glory and claim it as their own? Well, we can look through the scriptures and get an idea of what his attitude toward this kind of behavior is. Like in Numbers 15, where a man is caught gathering wood on the Sabbath, wood that he needed to cook his food and to warm his home. "Oh, so, no big deal, right? Except for the fact that God said nobody is to work on the Sabbath. So they caught this man in the woods working, gathering up wood, and they bring him before the elders, and the elders ask God, what should we do with him? And God says, Kill him. Kill him. He knows the law. He knows he broke it. Take him outside the camp and gather the whole congregation of people to bash him with rocks until he dies. You feel something about that, don't you? There's something inside of you right now that that grates against, and you're thinking, well, that's not fair. In another instance, King David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem from the Philistines. The Ark where the very manifest presence of God resides on earth. His holy, perfect presence. That was the object that he chose for it to reside on. In earth. And so they're transporting it back to Jerusalem on this wooden cart. And God told them, when you take it back over there, nobody is to touch it. Nobody can touch the ark because it's just too holy for anybody to touch. But as they were going along in this wooden cart, One of the wheels falls off the cart and the whole thing begins to slide down and the beautiful ark with all this gold all over it and just so beautiful and perfect is about to hit the ground and land in the filthy dirt. And so a man standing right next to it just instinctively reached out to catch it, to keep it from falling and getting all messed up. And what does God do? How does he reward him for his noble act? He strikes him dead right there on the spot. What? He was trying to do something good. I mean, his attentions were good, yes, but he disobeyed the God of the universe. Doesn't seem fair, does it? And here's one thing about that story. The dirt never rebelled against God. The man's hand was far more unclean than that dirt would ever be. Because of the sin that defiles us a human hand was far more unclean than the dirt of the earth that god created but once again we feel the weight of this against us why because you've got rights right it said that you don't and so we're in act of rebellion against god which is absolute suicide What we know about God from his word is that he takes rebellion and disobedience and the belittlement of his name very serious. And here are some ways that we are in rebellion against him today. For some of you, it's just blatant. You're just like, man, I don't care. I don't believe in any of this stuff anyway. Anyway. The Bible speaks over and over again about the terror that you will experience on the day that you stand before him. For the others of you, you're in rebellion because you're just going to help God out. Much like Abraham and Sarah did when God told Abraham that he'd be the father of a great nation. Abraham and Sarah must have assumed, well, apparently he doesn't know about Sarah's situation. His wife was old and barren so they thought, well, there's no way that can happen. And so we're just going to help God out here because of our particular situation. And both agreed that he would sleep with their servant girl, which was not what God told them to do. And so that's how you're like. And you're kind of like, yeah, I hear him. I know what he says. I know what the word says. But I just don't think he understands my situation. I think that that worked for that culture back then, but the culture today is different. We live in a different time now. Listen, all throughout Scripture, God's appeals to man are rooted in creation and not culture. And what I mean by that is that he says to do and not to do something, not because it fits with the culture, but because that's the way he designed it. And so, when it comes to sexuality, he doesn't make a cultural argument against homosexuality or sleeping with someone that you're not married to. He makes a sovereign creation argument and says, It's because I created and designed it this way. It has nothing to do with your individual situation or the culture of the day. And then there are some of you who are walking in rebellion simply because you're just ignorant. I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I mean, you're just oblivious. You don't know. You don't slow down long enough to hear the Holy Spirit's prompting in your life. You don't hear him say, be generous when he wants you to give. Or hear him say, shut up when he wants you to be quiet. You filled your life with so much busyness, and you don't slow down long enough to tap into the, the, the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit and you're disobedient simply because the Spirit says do this and you refuse it's because you're so wrapped up in your own world you're not hearing any of his promptings at all see what I mean about not feeling chipper today stings a little bit doesn't it that's the conviction of the Holy Spirit And if you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, that should sting a little bit if you know it's true for you. Those without the Spirit, they're just like, whatever, blow it off, not feeling anything about it. What we also find out about God in the Bible, in addition to His sovereignty and His power and the seriousness about His glory is that he is also incredibly gracious and merciful. Incredibly gracious and merciful. Although we deserve severe punishment for our rebellion and disobedience, God has, in his grace and mercy, provided a way for us to escape it And to remain safe from it. That's what we'll talk about next week. I told you this was going to be heavy. And I'm glad it is. Because you see there's something in our society today, in the church today in America that I think has completely escaped us. What has escaped us is just the awe and respect and biblical fear of the God of the universe. We've taken on so much of this Jesus is my homeboy attitude. That we've completely lost the awe of him and who we are in light of his power and sovereignty. And so I wanted us to just feel the weight of that. And maybe through that, God would awaken us from our self-centered stupor. And then our minds would be transformed out of enlightenment thinking and into Jesus-centered thinking. And also because it's hard to appreciate what you've been saved to. If you don't understand what you've been saved from, that's what we're going to look at next week. And I'm telling you, the news is so good. Let's pray. Lord, we confess as a people that we have made you out to be something other than what you are we have made you small we have robbed you of your glory attempted to to claim it as our own we have worshiped things that you have made rather than worshiping you Lord, help us to see you for who you are. Lord, instill back into us that awe and that godly fear and respect that we may walk humbly before you. Just amazed and captivated by the, just the hugeness of your glory Lord you created our hearts you wired us to be astounded by your glory and we allowed ourselves to be mesmerized by the mediocrity of this world and we keep chasing after that Lord astound us once again By the magnificence of your glory, let us see your majesty. May our lives just reflect that and worship you for it. We thank you for who you are, that in your magnificence, in your power, in your sovereignty, that you love us in spite of us, that you do have mercy that you are a God of grace. So Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to come and do what I requested at the beginning of this message. Would you wake us up? Would you open our eyes? Would you bring us to a place of repentance where we are turning away from self and turning to you completely? So Spirit, come and have your way. Father's will be done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing and we're going to worship him for who he is. And during that time, if there's something that